0: Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up. Reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school like I am, drop me an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and take care. So, it is the top of 24 still, uh... A lot of you are probably still doing the new year new me kind of thing and that's cool and uh a part of that for some people might be dealing with some body image stuff and going to the gym and working out and losing weight and putting yourself on a diet plan and all that stuff uh my guest in this particular episode ethan schiff has a lot to say about that uh ethan uh, used to work in the music industry he was a drummer uh ran a management firm And then walked away uh, To focus on himself And now works as an integrative health coach And uh, The impetus for that was really his own journey Through uh, Mental and physical wellness uh, Tremendous weight loss uh, Working to get himself uh, in better shape And feel better about his body Uh, So He shares his story And as well as some tips for others Who might be looking to follow a similar path Uh, We talk a lot about kind of the toxicity of uh, uh, not necessarily toxicity of uh, the job that he was doing but how it didn't serve him and how he was fortuitous enough or smart enough or whatever it is to transition into something else to sort of save himself i think that's really important uh it's just a a great conversation that covers a shit ton of topics so uh, buckle in and check ethan's story out
1: Well, my name is Ethan Schiff. I am very excited to be here and to have this conversation. I am an integrative health coach. I'm based in the Bay Area, but work with people all over the country. And the main focus of my work is also what I'm passionate about as a person, which is normalizing our ability to access all of our emotions. And as that manifests for me in my work and life is... When I'm working with people on their health goals, whether it be weight loss, body fat loss, fitness, whatever is going on, we're always looking for the root cause and looking for ways to connect what's going on emotionally with how that manifests physically. So when I was asked to do this, I got super excited because it feels totally in line with a lot of the stuff that I'm always talking about, but don't always have you know, the appropriate outlet for or channel for. So I'm glad to be here.
0: Well, thank you for being here. You may have already answered this question, but for someone who doesn't know what an integrated health coach is, what does that all entail?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So integrative health coaching essentially allows me to work with people across a variety of pillars in their health. So the goal is to kind of broaden how we view our health goals or health journey and work with people across nutrition, movement, sleep, Stress, emotional health, and mindset. And the idea is that rather than just focusing on, for example, weight loss at all costs or something like that, we're working to kind of connect the dots between all those pillars and help upgrade people's kind of health environment in their lives so they can hit their health goals in a way that is holistic and practical and not obsessive and restrictive.
0: I appreciate the fact that you gave that little qualifier at the end, right? It's not restrictive. And it seems like it's based in common sense because I think that a lot of people who would get to a stage where they're like, I need a health coach, would be looking maybe for a quick fix. Is that my brain going into uh, assumption mode or do you find that that's actually what happens?
1: Yeah, it's so real. Um, Absolutely. I think that's also a testament to the larger kind of wellness industry that we all see and are exposed to, which is a lot of times based on people feeling inadequate by the messaging they're seeing or what they're seeing in social media with people with six packs doing crazy workouts <laughs> or feeling like they need some magic supplement or whatever that's going to solve their gut health or whatever it is. I think a lot of times people get to that point where they're like, all right, I've tried so many things. I've yo-yo dieted, I've done this, I've done that and it's not working. Maybe this is that quick fix. And to your point, the first thing I talk to people about in all of our work is this idea that they don't need a quick fix not only because a longer term, more sustainable approach is better for longevity and for their whole life, but on a deeper level, they don't need a quick fix because they're not broken to begin with. Mm. And I think that that gets to the heart of this feeling of being inadequate. And it's like this cycle where people feel broken and everybody else is crushing their goals and their workouts and I'm not. And from that, it's rooted in a place of negativity. And I'm always like, I don't need to talk about vegetables being healthy if you're hating yourself. So let's start there. And that is kind of a perfect example of how it all manifests with what I'm trying to do with people.
0: There is a psychological element in the desire, but, and I'm not sure if I'm saying this right, the desire, but the inability to develop healthy, Patterns physically yeah. and mentally, yeah. So I, I do think that it is important to try to examine both parts, right? Like the physical and the mental part, in order to achieve gains on on both sides. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, I sort of know a little bit about your story and how you became a health coach, but share with the the folks listening what was your story? What was your path to this?
1: So for me, it was a very um intense journey. Background wise, I always struggled with my health. I always struggled with my weight. I grew up in a way that I think is very quote unquote normal, suburban middle America. I'm from Columbus, Ohio. And it was very much a lot of fast food, a lot of takeout. In my family specifically, it was always something we were struggling with. You know, my dad was 400 pounds when I was growing up. And my mom was always on Jenny Craig and off Jenny Craig and trying these programs and this kind of stuff. And in our family, food was everything. But When you look back on it now, I have so much more awareness where it's like, food was reward when you got an A on a test or comfort when you were sad. It was all food. Or if you won a soccer game, we're going to go celebrate here. And now those patterns manifest where you can almost just let it be part of your life in so many ways you don't realize. So how that manifested for me was in my mid-20s, I was 312 pounds, which is my heaviest weight. And at that point, I had been dieting for the majority of my life, essentially. I mean, I started dieting when I was early teens, 13, 14 And I just got to this place where at the time I was working in the music industry and I owned a talent management company and it was very much the classic tale of we were quote unquote crushing it and had an office downtown and a staff and our artists were doing great and touring all over the world and all this stuff. And quietly I was suffering and I didn't fully realize it at the time, but work was a coping mechanism and I would work my ass off all day. And I was very much having a direct transaction between the health of my clients and the health of myself personally. And I got to this place of basically needing to make changes, just having lots of issues in my body and back pain and mobility and just feeling badly. And over a several year process ended up going through a very methodical and intense journey and ended up losing 130 pounds and it totally changed my life. And through that, I became so passionate about all of this that I got certified as an integrative health coach, dissolved my music company and started trying to help people.
0: That's an amazing story. And congratulations on uh, taking care of yourself in a way that turned out to be super productive. And then pushing that outwards to help others through their specific journeys. Mm. Was there a point, and I ask a lot of guests this, was there a tipping point? Was there a point in your journey when you were like, all right, I got to be serious about this shit, and I need to take care of my body, I need to lose weight, I need to do all these things? Or was it just a gradual awareness of being where you were and then being like, I need to do something about it? When I think back on it,
1: in my kind of darkest moments of it, there were two main things going on. So on the physical side, it was around a time when I got engaged actually to my wife, Laura. And through that process of getting engaged, you start thinking about your future and you picture the future in a different way. And maybe there are kids someday and you start to think about it in that way. And I remember thinking, oh, I hope I can go on a hike with my kids someday. Like, I don't know if I can. And honestly, which I don't ever really talk about, but there was a point where Laura, who was the most supportive human on earth and was such a massive part of this whole transformation for me, I remember her genuinely just making me promise that I would always be able to walk. And that was a commitment I had to make to her. And she wasn't saying it in a way to make me feel bad. Like she was like, that was the minimum ask, you know, Um, I mean,
0: I feel like that's a basic requirement.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And again, she was doing it in a very genuine, sincere way. And I just remember being like, wow, is that where it's at? I always told myself I was just like big boned or a big guy or all that kind of stuff. And then on the more kind of emotional level beyond that, I remember with my work specifically getting to a place where I just realized it was unsustainable the lack of boundaries I had, the my tendency to spread myself way too thin, be the leader, overachieve, do all the things, and then crumble in the process of fulfilling my commitments. And that combination, that was all happening at kind of the same time. And so I think around that same time period is when everything kind of changed. And I was like, okay, I need to figure this out. But also, this is the interesting thing that a lot of people don't realize about transformations like this is, at that point, you don't really have much frame of reference or past experience that would tell you, you can do this. Mm. And so any of your normal protocols or go to things, if you don't trust them anymore, it's kind of like, I don't know what to do. And for me, I tried to make it an opportunity, which was, okay, what if I literally Forgot everything I ever knew about nutrition and fitness and health and any of this, and it was like an alien coming in from outer space, like clean slate. What would I do? And that was the thing that actually worked was going through. I mean, pen to paper, like creating a whole system and doing a, uh, trying a different approach to it.
0: That clearly was successful. That I don't know if that necessarily is. I'm thinking about the average person for whom creating a list and being that specific might not feel attainable to them. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering somebody who's like, oh, man, I, I'm not going to make a list. What they can do to maybe they realize that they need to take better care of themselves, yeah. um, but need to <clears throat> gradually lead up to the point where they're making a list of the things that they need to do. What do you suggest is like a low bar for motivation?
1: It's a great question.
0: And I totally relate to it cuz i was
1: there you know what i mean i i think the best thing you can do is start smaller than you think you should and identify your expectations up front and make it feel almost embarrassing to yourself how small they are and the goal should be that you're setting initial goals that you at the same time as you're setting them don't believe they're actually going to do anything which is very hard to wrap your head around, but it's like, how do we set goals where you can get a nine out of 10 on the confidence scale that you're gonna do it this week. And the whole purpose is not that those specific goals are gonna change your life or lose weight or whatever it is. It's that you can show up and rack some W's on the scoreboard. And with that, you start building momentum and you can always layer on from there so the biggest focus up front is not about quantifying success or losing weight or how you're tracking it it's about proving to yourself that you can show up and be the person you want to be
0: that's awesome and tying physical back into the mental or tying it specifically into career i work in the music industry you used to work in the music industry a lot of music industry culture, and specifically management, I think, to an extent. I've never managed any, or I briefly tried to manage people and then was like, this ain't for me. But specifically management, or owning a management company, there is an element of always being on the clock, always needing to be alert and vigilant, working odd hours, because artists are artists, and they have specific and particular needs, and it feels like for a lot of people who work in a management capacity, there is not a lot of time and not a lot of time to take care of yourself. It's constant work, 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 hustle, 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 be on call. And it sounds like you may have had an issue where you realized that that was not serving you. I don't know if you just straight up burnt out or what initially got you into it and what ultimately got you out of it?
1: Yeah, I think part of the challenge as it relates to the kind of hustle culture of the music industry which you're touching on and the assumption that you have to be available all the time. I think part of the challenge with it is that I think so much of people's work in the music industry is driven by fear.
0: <laughs>
1: like yes. at all at all times. And I I remember feeling that myself where it's like so much of the behavior if you and i kind of have the luxury now of stepping out and analyzing it and being like what was going on there but for a manager there's fear of your clients there's fear of not delivering there's a lack of security in what a management contract provides and doesn't provide and i think for the artist there's fear of how other artists are doing compared to them and there's fear Mm. of not making it in the way they envisioned and then for songwriters and producers, there's a lot of fear around lack of stability and financial support and scarcity. And there's only so many credits you can get and all of this. And then for the people working at labels, there's fears of getting laid off and there's fear of needing to deliver. And it's like everybody's running around from this place of fear. And so it's this whole ecosystem where nobody's ever stopping and being like, hey, are we doing this right? Does this work? It's just constant urgency. And there's no differentiating between urgent and important. And there's no real available time to check in on yourself, or at least it feels like there's not time to do that because every minute that is spent checking in on your actual well being feels like a wasted minute compared to what you could do for your client. So it's just a constant cycle. And I think that when I look at it now is exactly what you're saying. That fear is driving so much behavior. And if we could Work towards and slowly, even individually, I'm not even talking on a cultural lens through the music industry. If people can self audit and look at where that fear is showing up and what it's doing as far as limiting their ability to take care of themselves because they're needing to spend time solving this fear, I think that's the game changer that everybody needs to be spending their time
0: on. It. I really relate to the idea that the music industry is very fear-based. I don't know if it was always like that. I, I've been doing this for a long time, and it feels like it's become increasingly fear-based, mm. which is kind of a weird conundrum with the fact that the mental health conversation is, has grown louder. It's like people are more scared of everything, but they're also being told to take care of their mental health, so it feels like a super mixed message. But I uh, uh, I, I do agree that a lot of what folks do in the music business is predicated on fear. And I, I often wonder if that's the case in other businesses in other industries. I don't have a frame of reference because I've never worked outside of music. Yeah. What you just said, I think,
1: is so fascinating, right? There's simultaneously the awareness that there are all these issues and mental health challenges are growing and growing and growing. And there also feels like there's even less time and more pressure at the same time. And it's almost like, all right, I have this crazy to-do list and I have to just add to my to-do list to take care of my mental health. And I hope I get to that. And it's like, that doesn't feel that sort of supportive systematically. You're like, I don't know how to do that. And I think that's part of the challenge. And I think part of the goal is finding ways and even looking at my own process. I mean, you don't have to leave the industry like I did ultimately. But I think there are specific things that I remember doing being like, this worked as a strategy, as a tool, this type of thing worked. And I think there are a few of those that come to mind. And I think everybody should try to identify what those few things are. Because at a certain point, you can't just be burnt out forever. It's not a sustainable fuel source.
0: Yeah. I mean, ultimately, it's going to kill you. Right. What what were your hacks? What were some of the things that worked for you?
1: Yeah, I mean the first thing that comes to mind was There's there's a few routes to go with it. I mean on an internal level, one of the things that came to mind was this concept of um surprising myself. And this sounds like it's a very much around mindset and kind of that willingness to change and it was like how can I do something, even a small thing that I would have told myself mentally I cannot do, or there's no time for, and how can I surprise myself by actually doing it? And so there would be all these times, like sometimes that was, normally I'm at the office by 7 a.m. And that's just what I do. And the story I've told myself is I have to be there because I'm crushing it and I have to respond to emails and there's time zones and whatever. I could surprise myself by going on a walk in the morning and getting to work at 7.30. And the surprise was that everything was actually fine.
0: And <laughs> Nothing burnt down.
1: I didn't actually have to be there at 7. I had just right. told myself that, you know? So those moments, that's more internal and in kind of how you operate on your own and where you can carve out those windows to surprise yourself. Or I can cook dinner at home before going to the show instead of going out for drinks with people before the show. I can surprise myself and do that. But then on a external level of how it relates to other people, a lot of it was around boundaries and specifically not just with clients or product managers or people at labels I was working with. And it was basically mentally shifting how I viewed boundaries. Whereas I think boundaries historically had always been in my head as walls that you sort of put up and block off somebody and you hope there's not a big issue with that. Um, And I remember changing that perspective and being like, oh, no, they're not walls. Boundaries are actually an opportunity to educate someone on how they should treat me. I had never thought of it that way before. And so if I was putting up those boundaries or adding an extra conversation with people around, hey, just a heads up, I'm going to be gone from this hour to this hour, and I'm going to respond to this tomorrow. I think initially there was a lot of fear around doing that because it felt scary and like I wasn't delivering in the same way as I always did. And the surprise and the reality was people were like, okay, sounds good. Or the other piece, which was extra shocking, was a lot of times people would, in the music industry, be like, thank you for doing that. I actually wanted to go to a yoga class today, too, after work. And I didn't think I would be able to because I thought we'd have to work on this. We're agreeing we can take care of ourselves and do this tomorrow. Cool. (laughs) And I think it was like, if I had never said it,
0: the other person
1: wouldn't have said it either. I think
0: you're right. In situations where that happened, did anyone ever actually push back?
1: There were times for sure, when I look back on it, where I go, you know, to what extent was I doing this? At what point did I get to a place of, you know what, now I'm, I'm not in it anymore. And am I doing this too much? And I think for me, that was where I ended up leaving the industry was being like, I took it all the way to not being there anymore. I think there are moments where certain people and there are people who Specifically, come to mind who I won't name, but who I <laughs> work with or at labels, or who absolutely did not like me and did not like working with me. And it was very obvious and very clear. And um, there were things of like hearing so and so talking bad about working with me to other people at times and all of that. And I think what I realized in that moment was okay, I can either choose satisfying this person or choose myself. And I'm choosing myself. That's fine. And so that was a challenge. There was a whole period where that was very challenging. And it was like most people understood. And I knew the specific people who did it. And it was like, those people would call me five times in a row while I'm at LA Fitness on Wilshire Boulevard in LA at the gym doing my thing. And I would see the missed calls and continue to not answer and be like, I know this is not important. And if I answer, then I'm telling that person that if they call me five times, I will answer. And I can't do that.
0: I, I so appreciate that dedication to yourself. I think a lot of people struggle with the idea of of having those boundaries right because not only does the music industry and i'm sure a lot of other industries too participate in this fear-based you need to do this thing now otherwise you might not have a job which ultimately boils down to people worried about their livelihoods but there's also i think this is an american thing and Again, I've only ever lived in America, so I don't know if this is the case in other countries, where people's default is to be magnanimous. Like, people want to help other people, which I think comes from a good place, but I think as Americans we have been taught to not advocate for ourselves in a way, in a way so strongly that it seems like selfishness is, almost, is a bad thing.
1: Yeah, it's so true. And I also think to your point, this is stuff I've been even thinking about a lot in the last few months is I think a lot of that is cultural like you're talking about as far as the American dream and the pursuit of accumulation at all costs, mm-hmm. but and I also think part of it is a bit of a masculine thing and how we're raised uh, as men in America, especially, at least from my own experience. And the assumption, the sort of assumed goal is more all the time. Like the assumption is that more is better, instead of better is better, or mm-hmm. like better quality of life is better. And when you put those things together, that cultural piece and the masculinity piece together, I've found there's a lot of unlearning that needs to be done. Um, You know, it's not just, I'm gonna take a bubble bath sometimes and relax. (laughs) It's much bigger than that, you know? So that that piece is huge as far as unlearning the conditioning around control and power and achievement and success and status and money and ownership. And it's all in this same pot that just removes any sense of authenticity, integrity, softness, vulnerability, confusion, messiness. And that's the stuff that we need more of.
0: It really is. And. This podcast clearly aims to open the conversation to more of those qualities. Were you always someone who was in touch with those qualities or were they things that you had to learn over time?
1: The timing of us talking about this is so spot on. This is what I've been unraveling in the last weeks, months, a lot, looking back on my whole life around this stuff. And when I look back on it, I was always a highly sensitive person. I was always a highly emotional person. There is a story that is, I don't know if classic is the word in my family, but (laughs) maybe is a good example of this. I was in, I want to say middle school, maybe early high school, (laughs) eighth grade, ninth grade, somewhere around that. And we were taking a standardized test of some kind and the whole room's silent, everybody's got their tests and filling in the bubbles and doing the whole thing. And I remember getting this overwhelming feeling of sadness. And I remember just looking around and I stopped the test and I looked around the room and I, in my head eighth grade or whatever, I'm like, all of this is bullshit, we're all just robots. <laughs> why are we doing this why are we told we have to memorize answers to this so that we can present a certain way and get a good grade and hopefully achieve this and do this and i'm in class i start crying in the middle of this test and i'm looking around the room i don't even know what's going on and i was sent to the nurse or the school clinic or whatever because i was quote unquote sick and i was sent home from school for the day and i remember just like, talking to my mom about it being like why are we doing this larger thing and i i just always remember that as i always was feeling like i don't know this whole thing i'm being told to do as far as just like, stay in line and work more and memorize things and push it didn't work for me and i think one of the biggest challenges of my whole life and when i look at the whole journey was I was feeling those things. And instead of exploring that or processing that, or as a kid, knowing how to do that or having vehicles to do that, I worked more instead. And I just dove in and I excelled at everything I did. And it was maybe this coping mechanism that became the thing I was ultimately praised for and just kept pursuing. You know,
0: yeah. I, I wonder if the working more was a coping mechanism or if it was just kind of a way to buy into the narrative, uh, buy into what you thought was the narrative or what you thought the narrative was supposed to be and move forward in that fashion, or whether it was both.
1: Yeah, and I think it was both. Absolutely. I think you're right. I think. It just became one of these things where around that same age, literally around that same age, when I was feeling all these things, I had always played drums. I was always a musician. And around that same time, I started pouring myself into drumming. And I would go home from school and play drums for eight hours a day. And I actually became an amazing drummer. That was my whole world. And I went to Berklee College of Music in Boston thinking I was going to be a musician. And I was this prodigy drummer. and I think one of the things that almost haunts me now is I still play drums and love it and all good but it's almost like did I just become the best drummer ever to avoid talking about my feelings is that how intense the charge is I don't know but it's it seems like a bizarre coincidence that the timing of all that was happening at the same time
0: as you're talking about it I'm wondering too what was the impetus behind that. And it could be many different things, right? Probably some things you haven't even processed yet.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's not to say that I wasn't naturally in love with music and all this stuff. I'm not saying it was all a response to this, but those types of connections are fascinating to me. And I have always been this more, um, I don't know, emotionally in tune person. And I think part of this whole process when we talk about, Whether it's this weight loss journey or reckoning with uh, the music industry or even what I'm doing today, working with other people, the real connective tissue is the question for myself or others. Like, are you aware of the connection between what's going on emotionally and what's going on physically? Physically, usually I've found is a manifestation of what's going on emotionally
0: in some form. I think you're right. Were you, as a kid, as someone that was a little bit more emotionally aware, which, you know, children and teenagers don't really understand. A lot of adults don't understand. Yeah. Um, So as a sensitive, emotionally aware kid who was also overweight, I'm wondering what it was like to experience being around other kids your age at that time. When I really
1: look back on it, what was interesting, I was never bullied. I never dealt with that sort of thing. I My family was incredibly loving and supportive. I'm extremely close with them. I talk to my parents every single day. Now, I think because they were so loving and supportive, I always felt confident. I always felt okay. I mean, like I said, I always, in my head, was kind of like, yeah, I'm just like big boned. I never thought much of it. It was not um like what you'd expect as far as bullying and that kind of stuff. I did find a bit of a disconnect where growing up, especially in Columbus, Ohio, where Ohio State is the team and everything's around sports. This sort of assumed role was like, oh, you like watch football and eat wings and that's what guys (laughs) do. And I was getting coffee with my friends who were girls, like catching up, talking about whatever. And it showed up in little ways like that, that were more like, huh, okay. I love to read. And I always have. And I'm in middle school reading about minimalism and relationships and reading poetry, like just little things where it was just like, oh, this whole thing where I'm supposed to just be into sports and make fart jokes. Like, I don't think this is me. I don't know. I'm going to go read poetry.
0: I mean, to be fair, those things are not mutually exclusive. You can be all of them, Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: And I think that's the larger point or goal is to be asking yourself, okay, who are you
0: actually? And
1: not which version am I supposed to be on any given day or something like that.
0: I think a lot of folks, and I, when I'm doing these interviews, sometimes I tend to fall into a lot of folks or a lot of people or some people. I think people have issues realizing or i should say i wonder if people have issues realizing that they can contain multitudes Mm. Absolutely. I i have to be this person in order to whether it's because i can't grasp the concept of multiple things residing in within me or because i feel like i need to present an image to people to protect myself so i don't get hurt or bullied or criticized or whatever and they kind of jeal into this one hmm. version of themselves. And that has to cause some conflict, internal yeah. conflict.
1: I think that's so true. Yeah. From my own experience, I think what you're saying is spot on. I think we feel often like we are supposed to do a certain thing or. Oh, I'm the blank guy. Like, I'm right. the music guy. I'm the music manager guy. I'm supposed to be really serious and watch a lot of Entourage. And you start doing it and you're Entourage was my favorite TV show. Did I actually decide that or was that programmed into me? But you think about that kind of stuff and what you're saying is true. Unless we're deliberately doing certain work on ourselves to kind of get to know our true selves, we will fall into what we are taught is the thing or the person that we're trying to be. And there's a quote that I love so much, which is becoming who you are is better than being who you want to be. Hell yeah. think about that all the time, right? Becoming who you are is all this work where you and I are talking about around figuring out who am I actually and removing the layers and actually going inward instead of chasing more, like go further in the opposite. That's becoming who you are versus what you're describing is like, Being who you want to be. I want to be a music manager, so I need to dress this way and be serious and do this and work these hours and be available. And there's all the list that comes with it. I think you're spot on what you're saying.
0: And you can be both. You can be yourself and be a music manager. Yeah. And maybe it won't be the standard description of what a music manager is or does. It might not look like anything on Entourage or anything you see on Instagram or TikTok or whatever, but you will also be you and that can work.
1: That's so true. Yeah. And I think when I look back, there's no part of me, especially now that looks and is like, oh, the music industry is horrible. Look what it did to me in some victim-y way. I actually look at it and I'm like, you know what? Maybe I didn't have the emotional tools or awareness to navigate that situation I was in. And so- if i were a manager today it would look very different and to your point it's not to say oh if you're a music manager you're suffering and everything's horrible and you're dealing with all these issues everybody has their own version of it and to your point you can be a music manager and have boundaries and you can be a music manager and love skiing whatever you can have all these things but i found at least in my own experience and even from clients of mine that all work in the music industry one of the biggest challenges is the identity piece that you're talking about is how do i show up in the world as more than a music manager because if that's what i'm doing then my entire self-esteem relies on how well my clients
0: do and that identity piece again i don't have a ton of frame of reference here feels more intrinsic to the entertainment industry than it would if we were talking about pharmaceuticals or or tax law or anything that is not either a very sexy or a very lucrative profession. And there really does seem to be a bit of a crisis where people get these jobs in the entertainment industry and it becomes their entire personality. I am blank who works in the entertainment industry. And I I feel like there's a way to be like, all right, I do this for a living. And I love doing this for a living, but this is not who I am. Mm,
1: Absolutely. It's so real. And when we go back to the boundaries thing we were talking about, and that piece of it, right, if you really connect everything that you're saying, which is spot on, if my self worth as a human being is conditional on how well my clients do, Then when I get an email with urgent in the subject line at 10 PM, I am going to respond because my entire sense of self relies on how I do in this email. Right. Whereas if you can separate the two and you're like, this is my work. I'm a manager who also needs to sleep or also is at dinner with his wife or partner or whatever, it's a different thing. It removes that self-esteem and the self-worth piece. And I think that's the ultimate goal. It's called self complexity, which is I have multiple layers to me. I'm not identified by one thing. And because of that, if I have a bad day at work, I'm not viewing my entire life as bad. I'm viewing I, my work was bad today. That's not me. Right. right. Yeah.
0: yeah. A, a bad day or a client chewing you out or something does not <clears throat> strike you as deep because you don't perceive it as an attack on your personality. Right. Unlike your existence.
1: Yeah. But that is something I absolutely failed at when I was doing management. It's part of why I couldn't do it. I didn't have those tools. It wasn't there for me. So it's spot on and it's much easier said than done.
0: And presumably therapy was a big part in developing these tools. Yeah. You know, after the fact
1: and looking back at it and all of this deeper exploration and my weight loss journey was actually like the start of it. It was the first time that I was ever like, wow, no matter what goes on at work today, I have this hour in the gym, or I have this piece of myself that started it. And then that has spiraled into now. Yeah, therapy was huge for this, the different types of relationships and friendships and connections with people and all of that has evolved. And I feel like I'm in a different orbit and dimension with different tools than in the past.
0: I love that. Not to make comparisons. You're a drummer. You've been on a weight loss journey. You're now on this self-exploration journey. And the first person I think of is Questlove. Because Drummer is on a weight loss journey, has been very vocal over the last year or two, really post-COVID, about being on a personal journey and understanding his workaholism and trying to kind of figure that out as he ages. And you realize the passage of time and I think mortality might have something to do with that as well. But yeah, I'm just kind of comparing your journeys in my head.
1: Yeah, I love that. And I think that's beautiful. When I was playing, and still when I play for fun, which I do, Questlove is one of my favorite drums. I was always playing funk and hip-hop drumming, so he was the guy. And I think you hear that now that I'm very aware and attuned to it, you're seeing it more and more. At a certain point, the adrenaline of the slot machine that is your inbox doesn't work (laughs) like that it runs out at a certain point you're like oh I guess there are there are other things that matter more than this
0: right I am wondering how has your relationship to your body image changed since you've been on this journey it
1: has been very challenging To be honest, even to this day, even to this morning, it comes up all the time in different ways. You know, one of the things that's really interesting about losing that much weight and being on that process and feeling like in a weird way, you're sort of, I've been on both sides of the coin of Mm. like very unhealthy and very overweight. And now what I think most people would probably describe as very active and fit and healthy and all this stuff. The thing that's really fascinating about it is you start to see that you can change your body through that process. Where I I know it might sound weird to say, but oh, I I'm doing this and my body's changing. I can do that. Like I can adjust my weight. I can adjust my muscle development. I can adjust how I look and all this stuff. Now what's fascinating for me is part of the work I've been doing even more recently is around this acceptance piece, right? For example, I have loose skin on my stomach. That's just a thing that I have. And I've had people say to me, oh, are you going to get the procedure to remove your loose skin and tighten it up and all this stuff? And it's such an interesting question because the real question is how much do you want to change your body? Mm. And that's a really tough, bizarre thing to answer. And what I find now is the work I'm doing more personally now and have been for a while has been shifting from this need to change to this acceptance and having gratitude and being like, you know what, I'm aware that especially because of loose skin, but also because of just what I feel is actually a healthy, balanced body image right now, I'm not going to have a six pack. And even if I had a six pack, you wouldn't even see it because I have this skin hanging over it. So there's some mental warfare that goes on around that being like, oh, you can't change it anymore. But the deeper piece, and I know I'm answering in a long winded way. No, no, be long winded. Yeah. The deeper piece, which I love and is beautiful is around what does it look like to accept your body and actually, um shift from, I need to change myself or I need to punish myself in the gym. What would it actually look like to, I'm not even saying love your body. I'm not saying I need to love my body. I'm saying, what would it look like to be like today? My body is what it is and that's fine. And it's not going to take up any real estate. I don't have to love it. And I don't have to want to change it. What does it look like to be neutral, to not even talk about or think about it in your head? Health. you know, that's really fascinating to me. So that type of shift is what I've noticed and kind of worked on, and it comes up almost every day.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point you raise, where you say the goal isn't to be in love with it, the goal is to accept it. Yeah, there
1: are some people that talk about this when the idea is almost like, if we're saying you have to love your body, it's still making your body the focus. Right. Right, Right. which is kind of wild if you think about it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I, I need to to sit on that a little bit more. I definitely understand what you're saying. And as somebody who has had pretty constant body issues throughout his life, I I really like the idea of me personally just looking in the mirror and being like, I don't know that I've ever loved my body. I think there was a brief period when I was on Ozempic, and I was like, oh shit, I can see some muscle definition. Wow. That I was like, oh, this looks good. And I also, in my early and mid-20s, was overweight and lost a significant amount of weight. And that's not due to taking care of my body, but due to illness. I, I, I think I'm in a place of acceptance now, but it's fairly recent.
1: Wow. Can I ask you more about that? Uh, please. Do you mind? Tell me. No. I'm so curious when you talk about whether it's the weight loss piece or your relationship, what was that like for you? There was illness, you said.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, <clears throat> right after I graduated high school, I was always a skinny. When I was 17 or so, I weighed like 165 pounds. on am 5'8". So I was hmm. about average weight. Within a year or two of that, I was like 210. And my eating habits changed. I was working nights. So instead of eating dinner at six o'clock or seven o'clock, not eating afterwards and going to bed at 10, I was working until midnight, 1230. I was eating McDonald's or pizza at one in the morning and then going to bed at two or three and then Mm -hmm. drinking on top of that. So I put on a lot of weight really quickly. And then I'm type two diabetic, but there was a period of a few years when I, for various reasons, did not go to the doctor, but was dropping weight. And went up and then shot down super fast. Uh um, so
1: dropping weight really quickly yeah. due to illness. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I'm so curious, when you were dropping weight, how did people respond? Did people notice? I've heard people say they dropped weight from illness and they started getting lots of compliments for weight loss and that type of thing. What was your
0: experience with that? I think that people thought that I was like sick, which I was. I think people thought that I had cancer or I had AIDS. Mm. And truthfully, for a while, I didn't know what I had because I wasn't going to to the doctor, which is a masculine thing, but also a poverty thing. Mm. And it it happened again when since that point, I've never really been overweight. But going into the pandemic, I probably weighed 165, 170 pounds, eh, closer to 170. And then because of my diabetes, I was prescribed Ozempic, and I dropped Mm. to 145. Wow. Which even on someone that's relatively short. I looked kind of like a skeleton. Yeah. And yes. it was the same thing. Oh, you know, are you okay? <clears throat> and, uh, you know, back then, and this was only like two and a half years ago, Ozempic wasn't as much in the public conversation as it is now. Mm. But I mean, n- I was raised in a, not puritanical, but in an environment where appreciation of one's body certainly was not discussed. I don't think anybody in my family would have even thought to have that kind of conversation. Yeah. So it really took me until my mid-30s to get to a point where I was like, oh, I am okay with my body. I'm not hideous or horrendous and stretch marks are fine and imperfections are fine. All this stuff is okay. And maybe I'm projecting in saying that I feel like a lot of guys kind of go through this, go through body image issues because they're not taught to have the same... Regular relationship to your body that women do. And also, not to say that women don't go through this, because I'm very, very well aware that women go through that as well. Yeah. I think, like a lot of things, women have the space to discuss these things, and it's normalized for them to discuss these things in a way that it is not normalized for men.
1: I think male, what you're saying, and thank you for sharing all that, I think male body dysmorphia is the most common, almost invisible challenge or crisis that nobody talks about and is everywhere. And they've done studies and shown this and there are certain people starting to talk about it more, but it is so real what you're saying. And I think part of it is men, the goal is often hide your feelings at all costs and hide your quote unquote uh, softer parts or vulnerabilities or fears or any of that at all costs. And what is more vulnerable than your body, nothing. And so that is like absolutely off limits. I find it really fascinating and sad too, because I happily talk about it. We're talking about it today. And it's one of these things that you just need people to talk about for other people to kind of quietly be like, oh yeah, me too. But it has to start with somebody talking about it. And I think a lot of men suffer from this and struggle with it, but don't have any outlets or resources or experience or practice talking about it.
0: Yeah. Cause it's like in my head, I'm picturing you're in a bar with your boys, right? And you're hanging out, whatever. And maybe I, I'm imagining this. I don't know. Somebody was like, man, I don't like the way that I look. It, it would be like a pin drop right. moment like, or a record scratch moment right? in that kind of situation. And the question I was going to ask was, how do we normalize these conversations? But I think you answered it already and talking about it and being the person to kind of raise their hand and say, hey, I have this issue. Or even if it's not an issue, I have this question, I have this thought. To be the person with the big mouth who stands in front and opens themselves up to potential criticism or whatever for asking a simple question, like that puts you in a position to invite other people to ask those questions. And it normalizes asking those questions for other folks.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's hard. And it's really scary at times because if we don't have that history or practice or experience doing it, it feels like the worst thing ever. And just like in so many other areas, when we move from the thoughts in our head into our bodies, or or by speaking about it or saying it, it's immediately easier. And it's a lot better because you start to realize, I often think of it as like, all humans have these emotions, right? I was talking to somebody yesterday about this, where it's like, if I feel all these things, and I'm a human being, that means humans feel all of these things. Yep. And so the weird thing that goes on around body dysmorphia, around any sort of mental health challenge, around all of this stuff is we're all walking around the world with the same range of emotions, feeling the same things, constantly negotiating internally, which parts of ourselves we can show up as today. And what can we show this person? And this person can know this about me and this can know this about me. And it's like, I think most people are just exhausted. They're tired of negotiating with themselves.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. It, it is really tiring to have to be aware of which parts of yourself you can show to different people at different times.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And it, it's interesting looking at even my health coaching work I'm doing now where, where we're working on goals, what, working with people, of all backgrounds, all different types of things. This type of stuff shows up all the time and it shows up in ways that It's interesting, you can see some people are very comfortable sharing, yeah, I'm feeling this today and this is really challenging. And some people are not. And it's not all necessarily gendered or anything like that, but it's just different people of different experiences and backgrounds and different parts of them that fall into that conditioning. That's like, I'm this avatar. I'm supposed to care about these things. And it's just fascinating on the coaching level, having that kind of, I don't know, front row access into the psychology and how much that plays into our relationship with bodies and food and movement and ultimately ourselves.
0: It's amazing how much identity ties into all of these things, because we've discussed it in a couple of different contexts over the course of this conversation.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, 100%. And going back to what you said at the very beginning about the quick fix, which is interesting, that shows up, that kind of, all right, I'm feeling these things. There's a cycle. Like, I'm feeling all this stuff, and we could even insert body dysmorphia or sadness or whatever else, fear, scarcity, all of that. I'm feeling something. I have two options. I can either be honest about that and acknowledge what I'm feeling and go down that road or I can pick a vice or a coping mechanism that will temporarily cover up that feeling. Mm. And for some people that's drugs and alcohol. And for some people it's gambling or sex or internet shopping or whatever. Scrolling and social media,
0: food, yeah, social
1: everything. Media, yeah. Workaholism. Yeah. All yeah. of yeah. it. Food. All, I mean, a hundred percent over, overdoing exercise is a whole other coping mechanism. You know, and it's fascinating to be like, well, the route of just noticing upfront what's going on, that's like, all right, now we're in it, we're aware. If we go the coping mechanism route, that's just a long road to ultimately finding out what was actually going on. It's just gonna be a much more intense process and much more damage in the end, a lot of the time.
0: Right. I agree with you. Uh, so, final question yeah. You, as a coach, show up for a lot of people on a daily basis and help them through lots of different things. Uh, How do you show up for yourself?
1: It's a great question. Great question.
0: Um, I
1: show up for myself by being very intentional about being able to notice and articulate how I'm feeling and what I need on any given day and knowing that that will change and it's not fixed. And so sometimes that looks like being very intentional about how I carve out my morning routine every morning to read and do my thing and whatever, and exercise or drink coffee, all the stuff I love to do in the morning. And sometimes it's last minute turning down social plans with friends of mine and directly telling them I'm feeling this way and I don't have it in me today. And if I can kind of commit to myself, to notice what I'm feeling and then be able to communicate it to those around me. That's all I can do.
0: I love that. And as you mentioned, canceling social plans sometimes because you're just not feeling it, which is something that I do and feel guilty about afterwards. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I do think there is a lot to be said going back to this overarching theme of taking care of yourself. Actually, taking care of yourself and not feeling bad about it. You're not doing these things out of spite,
1: right? Yeah, and it's really tough. And I think the best way to do it is to have conversations up front that might feel unnecessary or clunky or whatever. Which is basically like I'm thinking of a perfect example. This happened recently with friends of ours, Carly and Nick, specifically. If they're listening, Carly and Nick, they know this. I mean, we talked about it, and I basically had said to them. Hey, just a heads up. I'm in this space of noticing that certain types of social plans, not specifically with them, just in life in general, yeah, feel really great to me and I feel like are the type of connecting I want to have and certain plans don't. I know we had talked about making plans this weekend. I just want to give you a heads up this is where my headspace is so that if as it gets closer to the weekend, I don't end up coming just know that it's nothing to do with you. It's just my headspace. And when that sort of thing happens, then if I don't come, next time we hung out with them, we had a whole conversation about it and they feel the same way and they are struggling. Everybody's feeling the same types of things. And it's just like not waiting until the moment something feels really difficult to talk about it. Mm. And you just set the expectation, hey, just a heads up. I love you. I care so much about you. I love hanging out with you. This type of plan is not going to make me feel like we're actually catching up. Can we make another plan that's more like this? Nobody's offended. Everybody wins. But it's hard to do.
0: Yeah. And it's very it's proactive and self-aware and transparent. Okay. And and those are all good things. And you're also taking care of yourself. And in, in one of the communities that I'm a part of, there's a, a big, big thing around consent culture. And, and one of the sayings that comes up very often is thank you for taking care of yourself when someone says, I'm not into this, or I can't do this, or I don't want to do this. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to recognize that, to A, sort of allay the feelings of, well, this person's saying no to this because they don't like me, or they don't want to do this with me, or whatever. And be like, oh, maybe they're doing it, or very likely they're doing it, because they want to take care of themselves and show up better or show up differently when they do feel like they're, they have the spoons to do this thing. Exactly.
1: A hundred percent. It goes back to, even when we were talking about around boundaries and expectations and all this, you're setting the expectation. Hey, if I don't want to hang out, it has absolutely nothing to do with you. I'm just sharing how I'm feeling and let's make a plan next week instead. Right. A hundred percent. And that's how I am with my friends. That's how we generally operate with each other. And it's a very supportive, thing where that social pressure can kind of go away and sometimes the biggest thing you can do self-care wise is watch garbage tv
0: (laughs) there's nothing wrong with that don't overdo it
1: (laughs) you never know what you need and being okay with it all and not being fixed on anything is important for everybody and it kind of gives people permission and space to be their true selves
0: all right, y'all, Ethan dropped some jewels here. So uh, I hope that you enjoyed our conversation. And Ethan, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being so open and honest and sharing your journey with us. Definitely want to have you back to continue this conversation. I think that there is a lot to uh, be learned from your experience and the things that you are continuing to experience. Folks, if you want to follow Ethan online, you can follow him. Uh, his personal Instagram is Ethan Schiff, E T H. A N S C H I F F. You can also follow him at Optimized Health Coaching on Instagram. And uh, his website for the company that he founded is optimizedhealthcoaching.com. Once again, that is optimizedhealthcoaching.com. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Ethan. Uh, best of luck to you and Happy New Year. Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as Detox Guy. Uh, You can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill, or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, Please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on, Uh, rate, comment help a brother out, uh, help us move up in the rankings. Uh, follow me on social media. Like I said, uh, follow our Patreon or subscribe to my Patreon. Actually, patreon.com slash detoxicity pod. You get access to exclusive episodes. You get episodes a little earlier than the general public. You get a cool ass sticker, lots of stuff. Once again, patreon.com slash detoxicity pod. Quick shout out to Calvin Williams for providing the music and, uh, doing his magic on the logo, which was originally designed by Jacob Block. I thank you all for listening. I wish you all the best. Please take care of each other. Till next time. Peace.